Welcome to Healing America with Dr. Jim White. Jim has been investing, coaching executives, and turning around companies for over 30 years. Now your host, Dr. Jim White. And welcome to Healing America. It is November the 3rd, 2020. Uh, U.S. general election is in process. And we've already had record numbers to vote early and by mail and in person and voting continues as we speak. And the results are starting coming back in later this evening. And uh, I don't know about you, but I have stayed away from the news today so far. So I'm looking forward to uh, our conversation this evening and uh and uh, cannot wait to see the results. I think this, uh, uh, this election cycle, I should say, in my opinion, this election cycle is one of the most presidential, critical presidential and down ballot elections in modern history. And it's certainly in my lifetime. And I've been through few elections over the past uh, almost five decades. The show today is going to be a little different than we normally do. It's going to be one hour in duration. Uh, I am going to spend the uh, first 28 minutes or so, and I'm going to be talking about Broken America. Uh, for you regular viewers, you know, that's my book that I released in September, uh, Broken America. And uh, so I'm going to spend about 28 minutes uh, talking about Broken America post-election. And at the bottom of the hour, uh, it is uh, going to be a great pleasure to invite our guest, Baxter Swilly, on. Uh, Baxter is a, a partner in Main Street, uh, Main Street Consulting, and he knows a few things about politics. So at the bottom of the hour, we're going to invite uh, Baxter to join us, and we're going to continue our discussion about the events of the day. Like I said, he knows a few things about uh, about politics. So I'm looking forward to that discussion at the bottom of the hour. So let's just go ahead and jump right into it. Let's just go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, in the introduction in my book, and uh, I, for you good folks that I know that has the book, uh, hopefully you can follow along. Uh, for you that do not, uh, it's not too late. I can give a selfish plug. Go not too late. <laughs> go ahead and get the book. And, uh, and, and I wanted to just take some time uh, to uh, go through the introduction and Broken America, that, and, and it's, it's, like, it's to write the course of our nation. Let's write the course of our nation. And that's what we're going to the post to do today. Can you, can you just imagine the turnout that we've already had in this great election? Uh, I don't remember uh, a cycle that's had the turnout that we've had so far. I think it's fantastic. It just, uh, it, it excites me that we, our citizens are getting involved. Remember, we own this country. So uh, all the citizens is going to the polls and voting. I, I'm just so elated. So let's write the course of our nation. And I'm going to share with you this evening and uh, uh, some thoughts from the introduction and uh, like I said, the bottom of the hour, we will invite uh, Baxter on and have a continue our discussion. But first, I thought I would lead off with this. And uh, this is from Benjamin Franklin. And uh, he says, a great empire, and I really love this, a great empire, like a great cake, is diminished at its edges. And we are a great, great nation. I'm not going to use the word empire in regards to the United States, but we are diminishing at our edges here. So what I want you to do is I lay out and you that watch me regularly, you, you, you know how I do things by now. And I want to welcome all the new viewers uh, join us. So thank you for that. Thank you for spending some time with us, especially when you could be looking at your favorite uh, news station and getting the results of the uh, this most important election. So what I want you to do, I'm going to use, I'm going to say red, white, and blue, red, white, and blue. We love those colors, right? They conjure up thoughts of freedom, patriotism, our states, 
our beautiful flag, break these colors apart, and what do you have? A fractured country, purposely divided by red and blue. A fractured country, divided by red and blue. The concept of parties representing groups of people who share specific political ideas dates all the way back to American history in 1787. And the infamous battle, you know it, between the Federalists uh, led by Secretary Alexander Hamilton and uh, anti-Federalists uh, headed by Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson. Well, the musical, if you've had an opportunity to see that, the musical Hamilton, my wife uh, 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 honored me with that in my 70th birthday a couple of years ago. And it's certainly today with COVID, uh, it's, it's now. You can view that. It's a beautiful, beautiful portrayal of, uh, of, our, of, of, of our Constitution. So, talk about red, white, and blue. Now, let's add to that. Red, white, black, and blue. Red, white, black, and blue. And you're saying, white, where are you going with this? Hang with me. Today's color coded state divides are believed to have begun in 1976. A lot of people don't realize that this had started this red and white. How did it get started? 1976 when NBC news anchor, John Chancellor announced that states won by Democrat, Jimmy Carter would be represented on a map in blue. While those won by Republican incumbent, Gerald Ford would be shown in red. The map of the United States on the TV screen was likely intended as an eye-grabbing, immediate way to show which candidate was in the lead and how he arrived there. Well, you're going to be seeing that all night, right? It goes without saying that this worked. And it worked so well, in fact, that the party members on each side Thereafter, adopted their respective color with pride as a unifying element. That's why they did. 1976. Ever since, and what I say, forever onward, <laughs> it's been the red team versus the blue team. Either you wear your team's color and jersey to the game, or you aren't considered a true fan, right? Where these are colors a popular way to divide opposing sides. These colors, proper way to divide opposing sides. Each nation around the globe uses a different color scheme, as we know, on their respective flag to encourage unity and patriotism. In, summer, in some summer camps, color wars break out with kids assigned to competing teams labeled by color. The game of chess, which is really a lightly veiled metaphor for a royal battle separates black and white, while checkers essentially does the same, but with red and black. Is politics really a game or a sport? By virtue of color association, represented a political team, we are already presumed, presumed, to be in certain principles linked to that party by color association. We become pressured to support the party, no matter what the cause or issue might be. We are cornered into thinking we must always remember which team we are on and serve as that constant cheerleader for it. The other team by default, other team by default, is the enemy and therefore must be defeated on every issue. This is what the color divide has become, the Democrat and the Republicans. I say, hold on there for a minute. If that's true, our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, our co-workers likely don't all wear the same political jersey color, right? Does that mean we are enemies? because we don't wear the same jerseys. Political color division split our country further apart every day. And heaven forbid if a Democrat ever votes red 
or a Republican votes blue. That voter is an evil traitor to the party in these days. Let's write the course of our nation, ladies and gentlemen, and that's what hopefully is going to occur this evening. As I was thinking about the show tonight, and uh, I was just, uh, I, I just, uh, just could not help but uh, think about a, and an, an a friend, uh, in known in the East Coast, and I happen to be in the East Coast now. Uh, he's in a blue state and happens to be a low key Democrat. He loves his country just as much as the next person, and is proud of the American flag as I am. Many of you know that I'm a, a Vietnam veteran uh, with a disability, one of the more blessed ones, but I love our country. I love our flag. I get goosebumps when I hear uh, the Star Spangled Banner, when I see the flag. I wore my uniform with pride. I loved it. Now, however, my friend admits fear when he sees a pickup truck with a driver wearing a red hat and an American flag blowing beside the windshield. He can't help but believe this fellow is a racist and possibly a white supremacist. But is he right with his stereotype? In the 2020 season premiere of the HBO comedy Curb Your Enthusiasm, the show star Larry David, as himself, of course, wears a red Make America Great hat in order to avoid having to mingle with people he doesn't like. His tactics works with flying colors. No one in LA wants anything to do with him and they flee at the sight of him under the hat. It's a hilarious statement on our contemporary culture that something as simple as wearing a hat can invite such divisive reactions. Think about it. And yet here we are a nation locked in evenly matched color ward, even as we await the results of the U.S. general election. When there is disagreement between the Democrats and the Republicans, most people automatically defer to their color, red or blue. How can we ever write our nation's ship when the intimacy on both sides is so powerful and persuasive. To bring up the sports reference again, it would be like asking a New York Yankees fan, navy, blue, and gray pinstripes, right? To root for the Boston Red Sox, bright red, correct? Fans who are brave enough to wear their team's jersey to a game at the opponent's home stadium are frequently subjected to severe vocal, if not physical, abuse. Remember a few years ago, a fan in Dodger Stadium that was beat severely and, is, is, and was paralyzed for life. Some people have been known to get down right hostile, as I would say, towards fans of other teams. And that's just when it comes to a simple baseball game. But, is it okay to do the same to a fellow American who wears a different color political hat? Aren't we supposed to be on the same team? Our country, aren't we supposed to be on the same team? Our ties should be to country, not to party. But let's not place all of the blame for the red state, blue state conundrum on the 1976 NBC news team and the many news channels that have followed suit since then. A great deal of the responsibility also resides within the political parties and the politicians themselves who continue to stoke the flames that partition our states and our country and pin us against each other. When a politician is elected into office, I don't care if it's 
in the town, city, county, state, or national level. This individual automatically becomes a civil servant. What this means to me is that he or she represents everyone, red, blue, or purple. Yes, the leader is expected to fulfill campaign promises that happen to be party-driven, but after that, the concerns and needs of the entire population must override the needs of the party. The people in charge must do what is right with upcoming votes in the next election be damned. Otherwise, you have a situation where the losing team gets buried in the ground. All so that a politician can get re-elected. By way of example, we know there are specific government leaders who only wear neckties representing his or her political party. Red for Republicans, blue for Democrats. Aren't all Americans on both parties paying millions in taxes that feed this individual's lifestyle and protect his family? Why would someone want to support a leader who makes it 100% clear from what he displays around his neck that he doesn't have your back. I'm not suggesting for one minute or one second that we stop paying taxes, but I am proposing that leaders once sworn into office must set the example and forego the color jersey play entirely. This is when it's time to ditch the hats, the ties, and the other, other color bias paraphernalia that excludes millions of American patrons. If you must wear a tie, <laughs> try switching off between red and blue, or don't one that is patriotic, red, white, and blue, or don't wear a tie at all. I don't think anyone really cares these days where you wear a tie or not. I just don't care. Symbols and colors are meaningful, whether obvious or not, if athletes on both sides of a football game all wore the same jerseys, we wouldn't know, or same colors, we wouldn't know which of the team to root for or against, right? The same goes for politics, which is my point exactly. Now, let's look at a moment in time when teams and fans were politically colorblind. Look at the time. That's back on September the 11th, 2001. I never will forget this. Excuse me. September the 11th, 2001. Never will forget it. The worst tragedy imaginable happened. You know it. Americans was attacked on several fronts by terrorists who hijacked several of our planes and weaponized them against us. The most vicious attacks came in the form of two commandeered airplanes ramming into each of the twin towers of the World Trade Center. Over 2,700 innocent lives were lost with thousands more injured, including many brave firefighters, officers, and others who went above and beyond to rescue victims. At the time, the furthest thing on the minds of Americans was normalcy. Some of the thoughts racing through people's minds, how do we go about our daily business after suffering so much pain and anguish? For Americans, especially New Yorkers, what is a reasonable mourning period? Are we even safe? from additional attacks, we would ask. In Queens, New York, subsequent to the horrific events, Shea Stadium, then the stadium of the New York Mets baseball team, became something of a central hub for firefighters, officers, volunteers, and others to recover from the rescue mission 
and strategize next steps. The last thing on anyone's mind on September the 12th was assembling athletes on that field to play ball. Major League Baseball postponed its schedule for one week as they deliberately, deliberately, deliberated, if I could talk to the scene, on how to handle the situation with sensitivity and respect. I remember it well. Some people felt it was too soon for Americans to enjoy itself with this pastime while the wounds were so fresh. Others believe sports could be a healing, unifying factor. This was uncharted territory for everyone concerned. There was really was no right or wrong answer. On September the 21st, Major League Baseball decided the time had come to resume the schedule. And the first post 9-11 game took place at Shea Stadium with families of those lost, as well as dignitaries, firefighters, and New York's finest in attendance to watch the New York Mets play the Atlanta Braves. The pregame ceremonies were solemn and touching. Tears were shed. The crowd burst into chants of USA, 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 while waving flags and banners as if it were a heated moment during the Olympics taking place on American soil. The game began and the proceedings settled back in to the usual baseball rituals. It was just another regular game, right? But then things changed in the bottom of the eighth inning. Down by one run, Mets catcher Mike Piazzi came to bat. The fans felt something in the air and the noise level rose. And then the impossible happened. The future Hall of Famer cracked a home run and the Mets snatched the lead. The crowd erupted in frenzy. One might only experience if this had been the end of the World Series win. But that was not all. Americans all over the country became joyous and positively giddy over Mike Piazzi's victorious game winner. People from rural, urban communities all around our nation wholeheartedly embraced the spectacle of what had happened on the baseball diamond in Queens, New York. Did Americans in Atlanta, Cleveland, Houston, Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, or Chicago care that Mike Piazzi wasn't wearing the right color jersey? That question can only be answered with a resounding no. They cheered because America was back. People didn't care which team you rooted for what political party you belong to or which count you wore. For one fleeing moment, the United States of America was truly united, united, all because of Mike Piazza's heroic swing. How is it possible some, something as simple as the crack of a bat can bring such a diverse nation together? in spite of all of our differences, and yet in the years since, we have sadly forgotten the lessons learned from the aftermath of 9-11 and have reverted back to rooting for our political team Jersey more than our country. We are polarized to the extreme and not even a shared love of America's pastime can bring us back from the brink. Friends, we are off course and adrift. This election, as I stated at the outset, in my opinion, is critical. The social issues we face in America are not new. Racial intolerance, religious prejudice, economic imbalance, and ideological extremism have long existed in this country. Much of this seems to have been submerged 
but it's always been lurking below the surface. Tragic, tragic events such as August 2017 Charlottesville car rampage, hate crimes committed on the campus of Syracuse, New York in November 2019, and the anti-Semitic stabbing at the rabbi's home in Muncie, New York in December of 2019 have become all too frequent as has incidents of mass shootings in schools and public places. Suddenly, the ugly, radical underbelly of America has become unleashed. Americans are hurting fellow Americans far worse than our foreign enemies and certainly doing more damage to ourselves than any group of immigrants ever have. Is anyone specifically to blame for this? Politicians, the news media, social media, or has the average American turned a blind eye to the polarization because he or she felt the need to overlook such things to help the chosen party win an election, line their pockets, or get certain legislation passed. Painful as it may be, I believe it's time to cast aside all the blame. We need bygones to be bygones. America is off course and far adrift, which means the wounds are fresh and sore. People rightly don't appreciate being called deplorables or any one of the million other slurs that we've heard in recent years. The rhetoric is out of control on both sides and it needs to stop. Immediately, we are at war with ourselves. While many people are convinced that suggested political rhetoric is the cause of increasing violence. I'm going to pause and I'm going to just say this. I don't, I don't, I do not think it's necessary. I don't want to go there right now and state this outright. I don't want to state this outright at this time. Whether true or not, instead, I would like to suggest that childish name calling, cyberbullying, and Twitter venting only pours more salt into existing patriot versus patriot wounds. And we have got to be calm and cautious as the evening progresses. We must respect each other. Empowering and strengthening our true overseas enemies by these actions is what we are doing. You are probably asking, how can we possibly all come to the table to negotiate and compromise on our serious political differences with all of these school playground squabbles continue to happen every day. I admit, it's easy to be offended. Politicians and media outlets want you to feel offended. These sentiments rile up emotions, such as anger and prejudice and increased ratings and the number of attendees at political rallies. Here's my rallying cry. It's time to cease and desist all of the childish name calling and slurs and bring some level and decorum back into everyday politics. We must right this ship now or the extremist behavior is going to spiral out of control with no way to ever turn back. Let's write the course of our nation. My book, Broken America, is intended to do that. It's intended to do that. The 10 principles that I lay out in the book is absolutely critical in my opinion. I don't care which party you belong to, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, or anything in between. I hope my message will hopefully resonate with you. At the very least, perhaps it will quell some of the heated political arguments that have occurred over festive <laughs> meals during uh, Passover, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, and other celebratory family get-togethers. It's not my intent to preach or sermonize, but my language if my language comes across, that way, so be it. The stakes are too high for us to turn a blind eye and not do something about it. My 10 principles, the vision for the country, leadership, truth-seeking, courage, integrity, tolerance, and equality, respect, patronism, capitalism, and money, and compromise. All have been meticulously selected for this simplicity direct message 
and universal characteristics. If you don't agree with them, and most of some will, some won't, it suggests that we take a close look at the Constitution. In fact, I believe that our founding fathers are so relevant today and as important today as the day they were written. To quote John Adams, and before we bring on our guests, always stand on principle, even if you stand alone. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome to PHT Opportunity Fund, a vehicle for you to make strategic ag tech investments in distressed communities called Opportunity Zones. These communities struggle with poverty, unemployment, failing infrastructure, and more. Right now, there are over 30 million people living in thousands of urban and rural Opportunity Zones from coast to coast. PHT Opportunity Fund targets the most promising investment possibilities in each of these zones for investors like you. Right now, we're redeveloping a 28-acre campus in sunny Salinas, California, the salad bowl of the world. When completed, the Salinas campus will be a cutting-edge pre-cooling and cold storage facility serving growers of the entire region. Cold storage is a tailwind asset class secured by essential need. Through PHT Opportunity Fund, you can reduce taxes on capital gains by up to 10%. And if you hold your investment in the fund for 10 years, any additional gain is tax-free. We deliver predictable, sustainable, long-term value for investors and stakeholders. Earn above average returns while breathing new life into low-income communities and making a positive social impact. Visit phtopportunityfund.com. Baxter, Baxter Sweeley, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you? We have the, an audio issue there. There. We there? I, I just unmuted myself. I'm well. Thanks for having well, me. Good to see you, my friend. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. I'm yeah. a little anxious, but I'm doing pretty good. A little anxious? Why would we be anxious? There's something oh. in the world that was going to make us all as anxious. We got to be calm and cool, you know, like that. Well, it's certainly good to see you, my friend. Um, 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 see you. Uh, we, we, we tried and we chatted a little bit offline, so... So tell us a little bit more about you. I, your bio just goes from days and days and days. So uh, you, you, you're not new to politics, my friend. You got over 20 years in politics and you're consulting. If you don't mind, share a little bit about your background and uh, let's just talk about uh, a little politics since this is the big day in, our, in, in America. So uh, tell us a little bit more about you, sir. Hmm. Well, hmm. I, um, I studied political science at Truman State University in Kirksville, Missouri did some policy work at Tufts University. And uh, I really jumped right into politics right after college. And I've run campaigns all over the country. I've run, um, at the beginning of my career, I did mostly congressional races, all for Democratic candidates. But these days, I do consider myself a, a true independent. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, I've done some policy work and most of my work now is in Chicago, Illinois, Cook County. So, um, yeah, you know, I do a lot of political writing and, um, you know, Chicago is a very happening scene for campaigns and politics. So it's uh, been a very, very interesting time. It, it is. Chicago is uh, definitely that. So here we are, November the 3rd. Uh, you and I are uh, blessed to share some time together while uh, people are finishing and they're voting and we're going to start uh, uh, at the end of the night or maybe over the next two or three days. And, uh, and, and I, I, I encourage everyone to be a little patient here because it's going to take some time to but all sort out. And especially regardless of what the outcome of this uh, election is, uh, man, we got to be calm. We got to respect each other. Uh, what, what, what's your thoughts? I agree. Um, you know, this is a real time for civil public discourse because the reason for that, not, not just because people need to be nice to one another, I think the reason for that is because when you have civil debate, somehow the truth prevails and you start to really get down to the facts and you get to the place where the rubber meets the road and people can really hear the information they need in order to make life decisions. It's not just about who to vote for, but 
you know, where to live and, um, you know, how to raise your family. All of these things are really important. It requires the village, the, the, the public village to come together, share information with one another. And it's just so hard to do when our politics is so divisive. I appreciate the, all the comments that you were making before, before I came on. If no one is calling for civil, strategic, open, public debate, then we really are on a downward slope. Yeah, we, we, we are. When was the last, well, I should say, what year was the last campaign that you, 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 you ran? Because we were talking before we went on air and uh, uh, every time I talk about Barack Obama, I get giddy because I just think he's, uh, I, I think he's just a phenomenon. Uh, so you have some experience with him, right? Uh, in, in I do. Well, I do. You know, um, early in, in my career, one of the first and most memorable assignments I received was working for Congresswoman Jan Tchaikovsky. I was her political director for two years. And um, Jan was a big fan of Barack back then. I, I would just say that my whole ambition was for Jan Tchaikovsky to run for the U.S. Senate in 2002. It didn't work out. She decided not to do it. And she summarily endorsed Barack Obama for the U.S. Senate seat. And we got a chance to, to really get to know each other as he as a candidate and me as Congresswoman Tchaikovsky's uh, staff person. But I knew him even before then. I ran a campaign for, Congresswoman, for Congressman Bobby Rush. And we beat him. Uh, like I said, I did some work at Tufts, and of course, he went to Harvard. And he um, he said, "So you 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 went to you went to Tufts?" I said, "Yeah, I went to Tufts." He said, "You know, I rarely see guys like you doing politics in Chicago." <laughs> <laughs> you know, so he he really is a real erudite. He's a he's a, a very intelligent man. But what I found is he's committed to the cause, and that that's no joke, Jim. He's the real deal. Yeah, I miss him as much as you do. I tell you what I do. And how about Michelle? Where'd she come in? Uh, I'm not going to mess with her. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Back when I first met Barack, she was really the breadwinner. You know, she was the person who was making all the moves. <laughs> you know, we thought she'd be the one to run for Senate, frankly. But. Yeah. yeah. So um, 2021, I'm going to use the January, January the 21st, 2021. I'm going to use that date. Uh, that's going to be a that's going to be a big date for someone. Uh, if we can, uh, uh, what what would be your advice? I mean, you 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 so much experience running campaigns and offering advice and strategy. Uh, regardless who the, who who the new president is, just just forget the color code there, the red and the blue. We we got a we we got a new president. If you were advising that person, what would be the first thing that you would say? You mean the person who actually wins the election? Whoever, whoever wins the whoever election. Wins the election for whoever wins the election, regardless of who it is. Oh, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, because, of course, guys like me are always advising candidates prior to the election. I understand. Every now and again, you know, a, a candidate needs support in following his personal convictions to stay the course and to remember what it is that got him or her elected. Mm -hmm. So I've been involved in those kind of conversations post campaign. And I think, you know, for either person, if they respect the Republic, if they respect the country, if they respect our democratic values, then they would sort of channel the mood of the electorate that actually got them elected and respect it and internalize it and represent it. Because I do believe that when America acts in the interest of its majority, it usually does the right thing. So um, I understand we have an electoral college and, you know, Trump last time did not win the popular vote, but 
in general, if you if you seek to sort of pull the country together in a place where those who have lost are not being degraded and the victors are 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 being rewarded for um, doing their civic duty, which is to go and vote. Um, that matters, and elections do matter, Jim. You you know that. Yeah, they, they, they matter. And what about the turnout so far? Over a hundred million. I got it. It's it's really exciting. It's exciting. I I I get so excited because I I I, I didn't go back and do some research, but I can't remember uh, when we've had that kind of turnout. That's to me. It's like wow. I don't know what woke us up, but thank God <laughs> we we are live. We're showing up. We're going to see what the results look like, and that's going to be an interesting discussion tomorrow, the next few days, whatever that result is like that. Because the base, uh, based on the turnout, uh, uh, it's going to speak volumes for us to uh, take a serious look at what's being said and what's not being said. I. Um Obviously, there's sort of this Democrat-Republican divide in terms of when you cast your ballot. What we're hearing is that Democrats are using the convenience of mail-in ballot, early voting, and a lot of the Republican voters are voting in person today. Right. So, you know, it doesn't matter to me, Jim. As long as you go vote, I feel like this is going to be a very satisfying result. Now, I know a lot of people want Trump gone and some people don't feel terribly comfortable with Joe Biden, but with so much of the country actually weighing in, you got to feel like, you know, we're going to get the kind of result that represents the the true interest of the, the, the entire electorate. I love what you just said there. I love it because the amount of people that's turned out so far, we look at the results and we sat back and we said, well, look at the amount of people that spoke. Right. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Right. So, you know, for so long, we've, we felt like there's this large silent majority, Mm -hmm. like there's somehow a disenfranchised, group of mass of Americans who are dejected, who are uh, cynical, who just don't feel like their vote counts. I, I, I feel like we're, 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 for the first time in my lifetime, um, we're going to get beyond that. And we're going to see a lot of votes cast and a lot of young people too. I think a lot of young people are yeah, that's 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 exciting about the young people. I, I'm, I'm the proud father of two wonderful sons. And uh, they are my best friends, and uh, they're just uh, uh, smart as to be, and they're politically savvy. And one's thirty-one, and one's twenty-eight, and they're really got their journey going. And they 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 love this country, and uh, and uh, so uh, they 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 are in their mind, we'll see where it goes. They're on a political journey eventually down the road. So uh, I'm actually recruiting for a campaign manager way in advance. So let me know. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm always available. For, you know, <laughs> if the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, I'm sure they'll be pretty good candidates. <laughs> so I'm recruiting before, and they're probably going to say, Dad, be quiet. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> but uh, they, they're, 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 they're so, so in tune in the political environment, and uh, they're, they're, they're fantastic. Well, I'm going to throw a few things out here, and these are big, big things. And I was making a, making a note before we, we started the show, and I was sitting here, and I just started just writing. There's no right or wrong here. And I just wrote to myself, the biggest issues in America, and this is, this is gems, this is gems, right? And I said, I wrote down conservatism versus uh, progressivism. I said, that's a big issue in the United States. And then I wrote down health care. And I started to say, if I had to prioritize these things, there's 10 things. I do things in 10, right? I got health care. Well, my God, what, am I, what, 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 what an undertaking that is. Immigration, religious freedoms, marriage. Education, I think our whole education, uh, 
environment, uh, spending, the debt, uh, all the welfare and poverty and election integrity, all these are big things, right? I mean, huge, huge things. But I think they're real things that are so big. Then I look and I look at our national debt, $27 trillion, Baxter. $27 trillion. Then I went and I, I did, I said, I haven't looked at it in a long time. I said, what is the U.S. unfunded liabilities? Unfunded liabilities. $155 trillion. That's Social Security, Medicare, Part A and B, and the federal debt, federal employees, and veterans benefit. Unfunded, $155 trillion. Well, we got a problem, right? Huge problems. Then we got COVID-19 COVID and the economy and we go on and on. And, and I lay all that out there is I mean, huge, 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 huge problem. So I like what we're talking about. You, as a strategist, you have to campaigns get elected. But what I also liked about it, I'd like to see you and your colleagues after the campaign is to kind of hang on after the fact and be the conscious, so to speak, of the person of, of the person that may have won the election. You do the strategy to get into office, then sometimes we get in the office and we forget what we decided we're going to do once we get there and everything changes. Does that make sense? Anything else yeah, makes yeah. sense? Um, you I know bark, I stuff I threw out there. Yeah. Well, you're barking up the right tree. And I think um, your comments harken back to what I said earlier about having to help a, a candidate really understand what is inside. It, it sounds easy, but, you know, when you get elected Congress, Senate, President, I've, I've never gotten a president elected. Um, but when you get there, you know, it's still early. It's still early. Thank you. Uh, I hope to do it. But, you know, so listen, I'll give you, I'll give you an example, Jim. When I first came back to Chicago after running campaigns across the country and I was running campaigns for city council, Alderman, I mean, I don't know your viewership where they are, but those are big races in Chicago. Yeah, they are races. You get getting the light to the Chicago City Council is kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um Chicago had pension liabilities that are unmatched across the country. It was so it it it, it was and is so bad. Um, but we couldn't have conversations about that because voters hadn't caught up. They, had, they weren't quite advanced enough. The electorate wasn't moving at the speed of the policy that the council was putting out. So for a long time, um, we, we were not really in a position to talk about pension liabilities mm -hmm. because people didn't understand it. And that's not good politics. You know, you're sort of talking, I will tell you today, Jim, Chicago voters understand our pension liabilities, firefighters, police officers. Mm -hmm. And the conversation is very different. And I think the same thing has begun to happen nationwide. Mm -hmm. I think that finally the, the electorate has become more advanced, more sophisticated. People understand their own self-interest really well. And they're looking at the deficit they're looking at the spending. They're looking at all of the disparities, mm -hmm. and they're making they're making conscious decisions about their life, their family's life, their financial future. And um, we are ready for the conversation that you just broached: the liabilities, the unfunded liabilities, the national deficit. You have an economy that's roaring prior to the pandemic, but the income disparities, the wealth gap is still, it's widening, 
as the country is more prosperous. So the question has always been, how are we gonna do what's right for the most amount of people in this country so that we can all enjoy the promise of what America is? And it's just not, um, it, it, it's not an easy political decision to make. It requires political courage. But it is an easy policy decision to make because the solutions are really, really clear. Yeah, yeah. I love those distinctions. When we were off air, uh, we were, uh, I was joking about making trouble and you said uh, something to the extent, good trouble like John Lewis, right? And uh, and having grown up in that era, uh, you know, because uh, I'm I'm 72. Uh, you look good, Jim. <laughs> you look good, man. <laughs> going on 20, 28, 72 going on 28. How's that? Just get, I'm just getting started, Baxter. We we got we we. I see. We, we got a, we got a lot to do. We just get started. And I remember, you know, I was, I was actually, I was in Vietnam in 1968 and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, 68 was another, uh, uh challenging period in our history. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, 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 and I remember, uh, those days and, uh, uh, Martin Luther King and, uh, you know, John Lewis and, uh, and, and, and you look at the people like John Lewis, John Lewis, right. And and I often sat in the quiet by myself, reflecting back on those days as a lump, as a young platoon leader uh, from the South, uh, and a lot of my uh, uh, people in my unit were uh, uh, were from Bronx, and they were angry, and uh, and it was just like. How do we how do we come together to communicate, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and and there's some lessons there, and from John Lewis and uh, other people that never give up. Look at the person, uh, forget the color, just look at the heart and the soul. And uh, and and that's one thing that I, I, in my opinion, I think we're missing. And, and I love one of the things that you that 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 you said. We need people with courage. When I ask where are our John Lewis's today, we need we need more leaders. Uh, I, I think uh, speaking up uh, today uh, in, in in the different communities because we are a nation of immigrants, and for some reason we we continue to forget. Uh, and and I've always been one to believe that it takes everybody. I, I don't it, it 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 takes everybody to make this great country, and uh, I'm hopeful uh, hopeful that. Uh, and when we wake up tomorrow, and I hope the country is taking a deep breath, and uh, and we honor, uh, we we honor the voices of the people, and respect it, and and this look my we just have time in history, regardless of what it is, I think it's probably one of the most critical times that we've had in modern modern history, this particular election with the turnout we got. The nation is going to tell us something, and uh, it depends on what what that's going to be. What's next for you, sir? Well, um, I'll always consult on campaigns. Um, I do a lot of equity work here in Evanston. Evanston, as you know, is one of the first in the country to pass a uh, reparations ordinance for descendants of. Yeah. Uh, African descendants of slaves. Yeah. Um, and so we're we're dealing with that here. I'm on the uh, reparations subcommittee. So, um, you know, I'm I stay in the fight, Jim. You know, I never leave the field. I'm, I'm always in the battle. You ran a campaign in Mississippi, didn't you? I did. The, the first black mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. Yeah. Yeah. Those were those were really interesting times. Um, Harvey Johnson, yeah, a really, really talented man who's no longer down there, but he was the first. And I worked with Medgar Evans' widow, his family. Um, many people who marched and worked with Dr. King. Um, 
it was a, a transformative experience for me. Yeah. I think I was all of 24, 25 when I ran that race. It was the first campaign I ever managed. So, um, you know, those sorts of experiences, like I'm sure some experiences you had in, in the military and um, all of the business experience that you have sort of shape your worldview. And I, I think when I look back at guys like John Lewis and others who fought and suffered for the, the enfranchisement so that all people could vote, to have a, a sitting president threaten to not honor the results of a democratic election is probably one of the most serious threats to the enfranchisement of, of black people in this country that I've seen since I, since I started doing this work. So it, it's very disturbing. You know, to, to you know, to be able to vote, it was kind of like the equalizer. One man, one vote, didn't matter your color. You go in that booth and no one could tell you how to vote. It's a secret ballot and you exercise the power that is given to you by this magnificent republic that we all live in. And for a person to say that I, I may or may not honor the results of those ballots that are being cast, that is really scary. It is. I would have loved to have had our current president in my platoon when I was in Vietnam. I'd love to have had him there. <laughs> but you'd be facetious. <laughs> I am. I am being very facetious. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd love for, love for him to be there. Uh, because uh, as, as a veteran, the way he talks about veterans is where I'm going with that and the disrespect and like that. So yes, I am being facetious, but at the same time, uh, uh, I, you know, I, I make no bones about it. I hope, I, I, I hope we end up with a resounding uh, message to number 45 that you're no longer wanted and uh, you, you go away even though I'm like you, I'm more uh, right in the center. I'm, I'm in the center. I'm not, you know, one side. And is Biden the answer to everything? I don't think so. Is he right for right now? I think he probably is. And uh, the excitement to, behind that is uh, uh, Senator Harris. I, I think that's bringing some, uh, uh, there's some uh, great, uh, uh, great excitement, I think, underlying there. Uh, so I think we got some great things. And that's the reason I, I, I think we need to, take a pause, send number 45 away, <laughs> bring Biden on, do what you're going to do, get the rest of it. And it is a, it is a sea change. Take a breath and now we're coming, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hey man, hey, I, I can listen to you talk all night. <laughs> you're getting me excited. <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, these days I don't find much excitement in politics been doing it a long time now, but this is really an exciting time. I, I appreciate your enthusiasm, Jim. Yeah. And, and I appreciate you. So we got about a minute left. Uh, I tell you what, you've been a pleasure. I would love to, I could talk to you for days and days and days. And, uh, I, I, I'd certainly like to set up down the road, uh, got some ideas, uh, that we could share. And, uh, and, uh, I'm so glad that you, hung in there and came back uh, and be with us tonight. And uh, so uh, I know there's people going to want to know more about you and what you're doing. So how can they get in touch with you? Um, my email, which I guess is on the, sh on the screen. On the screen here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I no longer have a website, but I, I think I'll probably get back to that. You can find me on Facebook. I don't do much there. Um, I, I'm a private citizen. I don't do much publicly. So anybody wants to get a hold of me can email me. Yeah. Okay. It's it's on the it's it's on the screen here. Mm -hmm. and I get that. So you have been a pleasure, sir. Nice to meet you. I love uh, love your work. Thank you for spending some time with us this evening. And this day much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. you. Are. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Baxter Swan, what a pleasure! Uh, what what a, what a pleasure is! Uh, what a, uh, uh, I love the love the work he's doing, and uh, 
next week we're gonna we're gonna be back and uh, and continue our discussion and uh, I want to thank everybody for uh, uh, tuning in and for supporting us and until next week uh, this is Jim White saying good night. Thank you for your participation and interest in Healing America with Dr. Jim White. To stay in touch with Jim, go to www.healingamericawithdrjimwhite.com. 